I think in America, what it really boils down to is the the role of government. It's it's not what programs they like. It's not abortion. It's not gun rights. It's not same-sex marriage. It's not weed legalization. It's what is the role of government? Welcome to a special episode of the Rex Crim Show featuring Joe Kama, photographer, audiophile, and international globetrotter. Please put your virtual hands together in welcoming the one and only Stephen. Hello. My apologies to you, Stephen, for my audio screw up, but it'll be more refined and better this time around, I'm sure. Yeah, well, you're lucky because I feel like I only got five more of these in me. For anybody that's trying to get a sense of who this uh, rich voice is you're hearing, you, you've just heard some of his talent. Um, I, I've played you in with uh, The Reign of the Robot King, uh, our song Lucy, um, and that's uh, that's Stephen on the drums there. Oh, I believe it. Why don't we start off from there? Why don't we just uh, hit that note, you know, how how we got together uh, in the Netherlands and some of our creative adventures, music and the Robot Kings. Well, I guess with that, Combo Joe got started right when I was arrived. When was that? I guess that would have been 2014. Was that 2015? When did we first go to Utrecht? September of 2014 is when I arrived. I okay. guess you would have been the same I think year. I was in August of 2014. I got there and I stayed out in a... Um, in a hostel that was out in the woods to the, I guess I would have been to the south, southwest of Utrecht. And it was this little hostel, probably had, I don't know, 16 rooms, maybe, probably 30 beds altogether. And it was this beautiful old cottage that it sat on next to this river. And I had been wanting to record my own music for a while. And I didn't really have any nice equipment, so all of almost all of the music on my Bandcamp, Comma Joe Bandcamp, was recorded with uh, phones. So I had a S5 microphone and a S7 microphone. So all of all of those recordings are essentially, except for the the Reign of the Robot King, those were these mics. I have no idea what type they were. Anyhow, I I kind of was wanting to record something, but not having a mic was blocking me from doing that in my head but then i when i got there and i was playing my guitar along the river that i brought with me to uh to utrecht i decided to just record a few songs and i like the way that they turned out songs that i've been playing at that point i'd been playing guitar for about a year and a half maybe two years and uh so i recorded a few of those songs along the river over two days and uh which is now the river bench afternoon EP on my Bandcamp, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of people that would stop and talk to me as I was recording it, and one of those conversations is recorded. I think it's called Flinka Flamingo and the Boat People, something like that. The Flinka Flamingo was was a uh, Fuente Flamingo, maybe that's what it was. That's it, yeah, because that was the that was a tapas restaurant on the lower street of Utrecht, which is well known for its two-tiered 
streets along the canal. It's pretty unique in the Netherlands for that, I believe. You're you're referring to the Oudegracht, which was the uh, the type of canal that ran through the city of Utrecht. Yes, Utrecht for for the Dutch who are uh, tuning in. I see that you paid more attention to language uh, the language than I did. Well, I think you've spread yourself uh, thin, maybe, with all the different um, travels that that you've um, that you've enjoyed. I, not to compare dick sizes here, but I think <laughs> I think you've uh, hit a, a number of countries more so than I. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about was language, culture, and and travel. But just to hammer home for folks that are trying to make sense of where we're starting out here. Uh, we met at gr- in grad school, different programs mm-hmm. in the city of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And, um, and if folks want to check out some of your music, comma Joe um, yes. is the name on Bandcamp, And we'll link, uh, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, but the project that you and I got involved with was called the robot Kings uh, with me, you, and another fella, Guy, uh, who we'll be inviting on the podcast in a future episode. And I that's, hope. What you, that's what you got to hear a little bit of uh, uh, at the beginning of this episode. Maybe I'll play another little track uh, uh, to, to play you out to. I think my friends really liked, uh, what was it, uh, Mr. Wright. Yeah. The uh, acoustic version of Mr. Wright was my friends in, in uh, the Peace Corps. They, uh, unironically liked that song, which I thought was great when people, because you know, when you make music, especially those songs, they, um, the recording's not very crystal clear. And I recorded a lot of them without a metronome. So they're kind of all over the place with timing and some stuff. And so I, I enjoy that people listen to it, of course, but it's funny when people be like, Oh yeah, I really, I really, really liked this one or that one. I'm like, ah, okay, sure you did. Maybe it's just my pessimism, but I, uh, I really do like our recordings Probably, yeah. I, I like my own recordings for different reasons for the stories that I, I wrote for them or like different parts of my life that some of those songs represent to me. But quality-wise, I feel like the recordings that me, you, and Guy did uh, were were some of the best that I've messed around with with other musicians. He he had a real way about him, Guy. Um, his last name's escaping me, and maybe I don't need to say it uh, without his permission. But um, but he did have a great way about the technology. And um, furthermore, I thought the few little recordings you and I did, uh, those intimate little recordings on a on a handheld Zoom device. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. Freegan, Freegan, yeah. which was <laughs> another track. And you're uh, an ode to Charles. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, another friend, uh, and the quality of those tracks was actually pretty, pretty impressive. And I think you've taken some of that experience towards a, a more endearing project, capturing culture from Africa, where you've been uh, living for the last little while, and where you're headed back to soon. Yes, so I'm jumping all around, but um, you know, maybe you can. Well, yeah, let's hear about that. Where are you headed and, and where are you coming from? West Africa, East Africa, Central? Uh, let's hear it. So I'll try to segue a little bit between the music and my time over there. So uh, the second recording collection that I have on there, it's called From a, Lang- a Land Long Lost. That was recorded mostly, uh, apart from a few songs, in Togo. West Africa that I was in for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. And so 
And the, the photo art is also a, a photo I was messing with a long exposure with my camera. I didn't really mess with it before that. So I went out to the, the school that I, I would uh, do some projects at every once in a while. And uh, especially with uh, certain teachers who I may talk about later that are that were really inspirational to me. Um, and I did a long exposure of the, of the sky there. And so all of that en- encompasses my time in Togo and my experience both within the Peace Corps and uh, I guess as an individual that was kind of in a unique, uh, in a unique place and uh, had a unique experience. And I, uh, my time in the Peace Corps was the first time that I kind of had a little bit more uh, I guess you could say independent on the ground work experience in uh, the, d- the developing world. I did my my master's research in Uganda, and I did a small anthropological survey class, whatever you want to call it, in Sierra Leone. That was only for about a month, and plus four months in Uganda. I previously mentioned the two years in Togo, and now uh, six months in Chad, and another six months. Uh, on the way, starting next month and the beginning of next month. So to to be clear, I mean, my I was studying criminology and you were studying global development, uh, international development. I, but yeah, same inter- thing. Excuse me, just I, terminology. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing. The words. I uh, I butchered um, before, but I'll get it right this time. The title of your thesis uh, while we were studying together, I believe it's the. Broken links of West Nile sanitation supply chain. Who will be the welder? Help us understand your experience. What what was the main lessons learned during your time in the Netherlands and during the graduate field work that you did in Uganda? Sure. Well, uh, so that thesis was kind of a culmination of my interest in what you call wash issues in development work, water and sanitation health issues. I was originally, when I first got to Utrecht, I wanted to study uh, clean water accessibility in West Africa. And that kind of got messed up because the pro, uh, one of the, I, I believe is how it went down, is one of the Utrecht, uh, at least my program, has a bunch of relationships with different organizations across the world. And so they would they'll send students out there to aid those organizations and to do research alongside these different development organizations or other researchers that worked for the university someone who, who's affiliated with it in some way or another and so but the the subject that i wanted to go into in west africa for this water access was canceled about 2 weeks before i was going to leave and so i switched to another wash issue sanitation in uganda so I went to the northwest of Uganda, Arua, um, to study pri- how the private sector influences the creation of sanitation coverage, complete sa- total sanitation coverage, and what uh, obstacles are there in the, I guess, the accessibility of these private latrines so it, what what are the barriers to entry for individuals constructing or acquiring latrines on a private level and so my thesis looked at different um 
actors, I, I suppose you could call them, in the sanitation supply chain, from the people who physically construct the pits, dig the pits, to construct the walls, such as masons, to create concrete for more uh, uh, fancy latrines, to the metal roofs, to certain sanitation products that can be used to further facilitate the use of latrines. So a lot of people don't use latrines because of the smell or flies or um, fear of their animals or children falling in the hole. And so there, I looked at one uh, another a sanitation product that was sold there locally. I think by the GE group created it, or at least holds the patent for it, called a Satopan, which is a plastic uh, kind of device that looks like a bowl, essentially, that you put in a, in a latrine hole and concrete around it that will has a flap on it that's counterweighted by concrete. And so when you use the bathroom, or whether it be solid waste or uh, gray water, they have a this, ma- this trapdoor mechanism that stops the smell and flies from going through. So overall, I was researching these issues and these stakeholders and these actors all around that created this supply sanitation supply chain of both suppliers and end users to see what facilitated the development of latrines and what's what hindered it and versus the state essentially versus the government and their um, influence in the creation of these latrines and so I found is a couple different things on that if we want to talk about the summary later yeah, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, uh, but to be clear, uh, WASH isn't a perfect ac- 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 uh, acronym. WASH, uh, I don't think there's an A or, or, I mean, it stands for, as you say, water. And uh, sanitation health. I see, water and sanitation health. Yeah, it's, they kind of, it's one of those things they forced to be an acronym because, you right. know, sometimes they uh, initialize, uh, what do you call those? Not conjunctions, but. And or, or, you know, those types of words. It depends on but, the organization. But you've taken, you took that uh, as, a, as a basic tenant of your studies and applied, uh, um, and applied it in understanding latrines and specifically uh, who is going to be su- providing supplies to them or just yes. uh, unfold that a little bit more. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm grasping it entirely. Sure. I probably was talking real fast. So truncate it down. Like I'm uh, just, you know, six years old. And <laughs> Yeah, I should. So that's one of those things that uh, I think is confusing about international development issues is because like many social economic issues, they're extremely complex. And so water and sanitation health, it seems pretty simple. Just build latrines, build pumps, and you're good. But these types of issues, of course, have far-reaching social and um, economic reasons behind the, the inequities that exist in the developing world when it comes to wash issues. So um, I wanted to look at these different individuals that have the, uh, I guess, businesses or the power to create latrines. And so to build a latrine, let's say a, a villager in some the northeast of Arua, where I was, he, he wants he, to build a latrine for his family. And so who would he seek out? How would they get those materials? Is there a lack of materials? Is there uh, issues with transport of certain materials? Is there an issue with 
the ground? Is the ground too hard? Is there is the rock type too not suitable for digging a deep latrine without machinery? Is there issues with uh, behavior such such as people don't see the 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 reason to use latrines or they don't want to be latrines? They find them too expensive. What are they willing to pay for these latrines? All of these questions I, or is what I sought to answer mm-hmm. in my research and to find out why um, more people don't build latrines as well as if uh, these these issues that exist in the supply chain what can we do to to rectify these issues so that complete total sanitation coverage can be accomplished in I see. this part of Uganda so in, in the in in this part of the world that you were studying i mean a large part of the concern has to do with water and uh and and how that water is being processed including water that goes through our bodies sure and, and back to the earth is that a, a sort of a simplified way of of making sense of what you're describing here sure yeah i mean wash issues can be a bit more holistic than what i studied so i studied a very specific type of uh, issue when it comes to sanitation uh coverage so mm-hmm. yeah there's people who study all types of stuff and i still technically work in uh, a wash issue uh today but I um, started off that way as, just as an interest in drinking water, but now I'm kind of, it's kind of gone a bit more expansive to what I'm doing now. And, uh, and maybe yeah. explain, may, explain that a little bit more. I, I wanted to ask about your, your, your methodology of, uh, of doing the research during your MA mm-hmm. and tie in, tie in some of the details about, you know, your experience as an audio audiophile, if I can use that. Do you term. have an MA? Uh, I do. So I have an MS. I don't know. MSC. Yeah. You've got a, a far weightier and I'm a scientist, reputable. bro. Yeah. More. Well, then you're going to have to get down to my level and help me, uh, and, and help the artists. Tuning so. in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Make, uh, make sense of this, uh, for a scientist. Uh-huh. Specifically about the way you 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 conducted that research, um, what were the methods? Sure. So my methodology was we selected. Oh, I forget the number of villages now. I want to say it was like plus more than fifty in a random geographical area that was helped uh, that was selected alongside, or these villages were selected with the with the aid of the organization I was working with at the time that was uh, an affiliate of the Utrecht University, which was called SNV, which is a Dutch development organization. So with them, we, we figured out these villages in this randomized geographical area. And the way that we would conduct interviews in these villages was also randomized, which using the pin drop method, which is you you throw up a pin in the air and wherever it lands, the way that the tip is pointing is the way you walk until you encounter a household within reason, you know, not, you know, just going to walk into like the desert or something or into Congo in my case or South Sudan. And so you try to randomize it as much as you can to, to have a more robust view of, of the realities that exist there when it comes to total sanitation coverage. So, we did a number of, I guess you could call it more qualitative interviews. I think it was over 200 that we ended up doing. 
And after that, I organized the data and, and uh, cleaned it and, and started to analyze it to figure out what issues existed uh, in relation to people acquiring a latrine, as well as I looked at the willingness to pay for these latrines, which I found was very high. Most of the individuals in the, uh, interviewed stated that they would like to have a latrine and they're willing to pay more than the latrine actually costs. They had a decent knowledge on the availability of resources, but, but oftentimes those resources weren't exploited uh, properly, as well as what I found at a more, I guess you could call it government, local government level, was the creation of what are called bylaws. So the chief of village says, you need to build a latrine in the next month. If you do not, I will come and take your goat. I will take your bicycle. There's consequences for not following this because a lot of work that different NGOs have done has been to hammer home the point that open air defecation and lack of sanitation facilities is not a is not a individual risk it's not an individual problem it's not an individual that only sees the the consequences of of defecating in the open air it is a problem that from the the disease vectors the flies and and different and different way uh diseases that stem from those flies touching food this is a issue that exists in the entire community and so in order to reduce the the amount of disease from diarrhea to more serious diseases that are uh, waste-borne waterborne diseases you need to have a the whole village needs to buy in as it is hmm. so these bylaws i found were the most influential in creating latrine coverage in these local communities the government tried to do this this type of bylaws on a national level during the 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 presidency of Idi Amin and him his methods were heavy-handed to say the least and created a sort of fear of these types of questions even in these areas so like people would build these fake latrines that were essentially four walls and a tin roof that had nothing below them. So when the when the truck of government, I don't know what they if they were soldiers or exactly what came by and to to check if they had latrines, they would point you know just over there. Oh yeah, that's our latrine. This is ours. This is this is my neighbor's. And they would see it from a distance and not check and say okay, and they'd leave them alone. And so, while good intentioned in in, in a weird way, Ida means policy didn't increase the the prevalence of latrines in these rural communities that only instilled fear and uh, a way to skirt the responsibilities towards health in the community. So, so if I just to summarize then to the, to the methodology point, you were interviewing folks and then you did sort of a thematic or discourse analysis on what, what was revealed in those interviews with specific attention to uh, the types of bylaws Yes, um, I, that, I mean I quantified their responses. That I based the the questionnaire off of off of UN documents that that 
address sanitation coverage in different parts of the world. I think ours was from like Nepal is where I think the questionnaire that I, I used was. And I okay. added there were surveys as well as as yes in yes interviews okay. yeah these interviews I, I I say as interviews but they were all questionnaires they were all standardized between every uh, I guess respondent oh interesting so 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 this, so this was not sitting down for hours at a time really unfolding for the person for the respondent in front of you their experiences per se you were you were more or less I mean I'm thinking to myself how do you have two hundred respondents uh oh from an interviews like that yeah i mean in in my in in my airy fairy master of arts degree and and the type of criminology that we studied you know the idea of in-depth emphatic appreciation you know qualitative uh, interviews in my mind were like facilitating life histories and doing long form interviews but obviously i i couldn't do 200 of them um, in your case, was it a mix of the two or was it mostly surveys or was it, uh, uh, you know, what were all the methods that you used to, to capture your data? Sure. Perhaps I wasn't too clear on that. So yes, they were, they were standardized questionnaires that were given to each of these respondents. And right. so I would go there with a translator. I worked a lot with, um, uh, two different translators of a man and a woman that we would sometimes women, uh, because of uh, different cultural and religious reasons they wouldn't talk to a man uh without uh their husband present so we would have my the the woman or their name was was david and uh i forget her name i think it was like annalise or something like that uh, which uh, language were you translating into oh uh, a couple so there was aru i believe it's called arua aru was the main language of that of that area? The Rua people was like that's why that that city was named as such. After the to be, the to be clear, this is in Uganda. Yeah, northwest Uganda on the border of Congo and South Sudan. Right. Um, yeah, there's a couple of languages. I I forget how many now and their their names. I'm sure it's in my thesis somewhere. What sure. what, what was translated. But you needed uh, help anyway, communicating with the locals, not just for language barriers, but also cultural um, cultural ones that prohibited you know men from speaking to women and that sort of thing. Yes, and you'll find these types of you know, these types of issues uh, almost anywhere in the developed world, developing world, because of the um, as well as how to phrase these types of questions, even if they do speak English, how to phrase these questions in a culturally appropriate context as well it's there's there's a million reasons why you need an interpreter for this this type of work and and uh so thankfully ours were were pretty awesome um i still i I interrupted you and you were you so i mean i think i've got a better understanding of your methods now um mostly standardized questionnaires um some in-depth interviews as well sorry no no not really in-depth interviews i mean especially nothing that was I don't know what you'd say off the record. So all of these, these, the questions asked were responded to and written down in their respective uh, places on these, this questionnaire and, and were, were recorded and analyzed in that way. They were all there. There was very um, structured, I guess you could say. So it wasn't, it wasn't more free form qualitative uh, interviews as, as, as I believe Master of Art stuff. Yeah, right. which would be cool, but those types of things are often hard to um, uh, get a statistically significant number of respondents. 
And it sounds like, yeah, I mean, indeed. I mean, what I'm interested more, uh, you know, in my type of qual uh, research, it's, you know, rather exploratory and explicating things that are otherwise unknown. Whereas I think in your case, you're describing a, a study that was, uh, well, you were taking a, a questionnaire previously, you know, developed uh, in another part of the world. And, and mm-hmm. I think your project was probably stemming off of a pre-existing research project that your supervisor um, was, or how, how original w- was your thesis compared to, um, you know, what, what others in that field were researching so for the questionnaire alone so i i edited a lot with uh or not a lot but i edited it to be uh, more how would you say that i edited it to be in line with the the local culture because some of it was like very cultural specific to nepal so there would there would be questions that had no bearing to the, the local on the grand realities of northwest uganda and so i edited it with my different uh supervisors i suppose you could call them mentors over there and uh to make it both culturally appropriate as well as uh i guess a more scientific types of questions so to to have these questions be methodologic how would you say that methodically thought out and the way that you're going to use the data what type of data you're you're trying to glean from these questions as well as how they relate to other aspects of your research and so, along with the other folks at SNV, including my direct supervisor Linus, we ended up being uh, making these these surveys that we then went out and did this randomized uh, interviews, as I as I spoke about earlier. And then after that, we I returned after four months there in Uganda. I returned to uh, Utrecht to analyze it and to to separate out the data and to figure out what exactly are these barriers to latrine construction. It's funny because, you know, here we are something like six years after the fact, uh, you're referring to your graduate uh, thesis mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Utrecht. And we spent a lot of time together, although none of that time seemed to be discussing uh, discussing this work. I mean, we were basically making music and playing billiards and, uh, you know, meeting up at cafes and all the extracurricular stuff. So now yes. I'm, now I'm learning about, uh, the scientific side of Steven. Yes. I, uh, I don't know. I think especially when you're doing research, everyone is so, uh, caught up in their own that a lot of those types of discussions, unless they're with your, your, your classmates, I don't know how much that gets discussed because, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a familiarity with those types of issues or I even know it's just far, go as far as to say world, then it may not be that interesting or enlightening or relevant. I have no, no idea about this, uh, you know, field really. And so I look at it in terms of an opportunity to sort of cross train, you know, all the things that are unrelated to my work uh, are sort of an intellectual cross training that that makes me appreciate the phenomenon that I'm interested in in a new light. Mm-hmm. I'm one. I'm wondering if you can uh, apply any of these lessons learned or what we're talking about regarding wash principles or the idea of sanitation to um, what people might be reading about in terms of uh, news coming out of India at the moment. Are you are you following? Um, 
global affairs outside of Africa and, um, you know, outside of the U S right now, are you aware of, I'm hearing about bodies, for example, uh, flowing down rivers in, in India due to the, the COVID uh, pandemic. That's sure. Broken um, there. I, uh, India is not really necessarily my specialty, but those types of issues are, we do learn about those in, in school. And I have had colleagues who have worked in those areas. Um, from my understanding with COVID over there, yeah, they've, they've had this massive resurgence of COVID as well as different variations of COVID, different mutations that have, as, as viruses are one to do, they, they mutate extremely rapidly, which makes them so difficult to to uh, vaccinate, which is why these new RNA vaccines are, are potentially such a godsend in, in a manner of speaking to help stem these types of pandemics. And we may look back upon this time in history as the beginning of a new type of human medicine from the way that RNA, mRNA vaccines can be used to, to treat human disease. Um, I know that in regards to the bodies in the river, the Ganges is probably what you're speaking of. It's a very a holy river to Hindus and other religions around there, I believe. And they wash, washing the body in the river is one of the sacred rites to, um, after death. As far as, I think it's what I know yeah, about that's, that type uh, of issue. I, I, wanna, I wanted to segue into the idea of vaccines, and maybe that's an appropriate uh, way I, I'm jumping around. There's so many things I want to ask you about in so little time. Um, why don't we, uh, well, we'll come back to the audio thing. I was going to ask about, you know, I, I, it was my understanding when you were interviewing folks, um, you were recording audio, uh, while you were there. And I want to ask about the library of Congress, which I know you have a pending, um, project with as well. So maybe we, remind me and we can come back to that. But on the topic of vaccines now, where are you uh, in the world of COVID? You've had your mRNA vaccine uh, as of now? I have. Yeah. I had, uh, had my two Pfizer shots um, in April, throughout April. I got them. And uh, but yeah, I got a little sick on the second one. It was pretty wild. It felt like, so I had, I did actually get COVID in Chad Oh, really? And, uh, I had it in uh, early March. I guess you say mid-March. I was leaving the country at the time, actually going from my post to the capital, which takes about two days on a car. And uh, I kind of felt, on the second day, I kind of felt a little bit tired and, and uh, had a bunch of weird symptoms too. Like my back skin was really sensitive against like the car seat. Like it felt like all my hairs were standing up and they were like being compressed. It's kind of a weird way to put it, but that's as well. It's as funny. I, I can relate. I've only got my first Pfizer shot, but I experienced something like not, not quite pins and needles, but almost an experience on my legs as though I was sweating, which I wasn't. And it was like a cold sweat uh, yes. while I was walking. It, it was a strange sensation, but it passed very quickly. And it's minor, I understand, compared to the symptoms of COVID, if you, if you, uh, you know, were not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the, the symptoms that I got from the vaccine were somewhat similar to what I felt when I had COVID. Mine was a very pretty mild case, I would say all things considered, I had a uh, limited 
or I had a complete loss of smell and taste, which was the weirdest thing in the world. But now it's it's come back a hundred percent, thankfully. Um, I had kind of a fever, a little bit of a cough, uh, kind of a, a flimmy cough, and um, beyond that, it was pretty mild. Small fever one day for like twelve hours. I had a fever, and uh, it, it was so pretty you, mild. This is this is while you were in Chad. Yeah, yeah. As I was and, leaving Chad, and I was doing like all my exit interviews and stuff with my supervisors, and uh, yeah, it was pretty wild. I didn't even, I didn't you, know it until we got because you have to get tested to fly out to the United States, and so I got tested, and they they called me as I was at like this house party with all these other people from the U S embassy. And I was having a great time. You know, it's, it's cool to, to be around a bunch of English speakers after being only with French speakers for so long, especially Americans that, you know, share your culture and all that business. And, uh, they, uh, sorry, my dog's being a little crazy right now. Um, it's all right. and after we got that call, I, I grabbed my buddy and we were in the kitchen and I said, hey, we got to go outside right now. And then he's kind of looking at me like, what? And as we're going outside, he gets the call. You know, from this is both from our our medical service that we have over there. And, uh, you know, they tell him as well, you're, you've been, your t- COVID-19 test is positive. You need to quarantine for a week and then take another test and, on this date and so forth. And so we were sitting outside just like, what the fuck do we do with all these people? Because there's probably 30 people at this house party and we feel terrible like because they're gonna have to go get tested and all this stuff but then we find out that the u.s embassy had already vaccinated them and this was like they must have got nearly the first batch of vaccines and maybe because they're in uh, such a low resource country in regards to the amount of things that the u.s embassy can do for the individuals there versus somewhere like berlin you know so I think they got the they were first in line for the vaccine, and so we told the 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 guy at the house party that we've tested positive. He's like, "Oh, that sucks," but we've all been vaccinated, so don't worry about it. So we that was a huge weight off all sh- our shoulders, and and uh, then we just went back, and our other colleagues that were there with us that were work for the same organization as we do, they ended up uh, all testing negative as well. So you were sweating, thinking that these were all diplomats, or who who were you brushing shoulders with at this house party? No, nah, not not as high as that. They they were different people who worked for the embassy in different regards. Some, you know, a lot of those people that were just starting out and were in different what they call cones in the in the State Department. So there's like uh, diplomacy cones where they had people who would check uh, you know, passport applications and stuff, and others that were that would handle security in the country and, and make a security profile for, to see what was going on, what risks were, were present, as well as uh, Marines. So Marines guard the embassy everywhere in the, in the, the world. And that's one of the, the stations that you can be uh, selected for, I guess, in the Marines is to, to guard embassies. So they, they, they spend about, I think it's like four months, four or five months, something like that, every, and then they move to another one. But they they are pretty they have a reputation for being pretty rowdy in the nightlife scene, which I can't blame them. You know, they're you take like eighteen year old kids and put them in Nairobi and say behave now. You know, it, it makes sense that they go a little wild. So this is while you're in the Peace Corps. No, this is this is uh, right now, most recently for for the Carter Center. 
Okay, so I, I'm I'm a little bit unclear. Help us make sense of uh, what. I mean, I think when I'm reviewing your uh, impressive resume, I think you had just come back from Chad, um, but no, but that was within the, the Peace Corps or with a different organization? So yes, so that's with a different organization. Right now, I work with uh, the Carter Center, and uh, I, I work in Guinea Worm Eradication in, in Chad. And what is that? So Guinea Worm is a parasite that uh, you ingest through contaminated water sources, contaminated with with larvae, which are then eaten by very small crustaceans called copepods. These copepods allow the survival of the larva to get past your stomach into your intestines, to which they uh, bar... Uh, what would you go, what's the word for that? Barrow? Berry? I don't remember what it is in English, but they go into your intestinal wall, and about a year later, they'll emerge from somewhere in your body erupt out of the skin as it is usually in your lower extremities but it can be anywhere on your body mm-hmm. uh, and it causes a lot of pain and uh, uh, joint pain and itching and burning and all types of all types of uh, mobility issues as well like you don't want to walk or work or go out and so it causes a lot of loss of productivity in these in these communities and can be potentially pretty bad for families if you know their their single income earner becomes uh, essentially bedridden for two or three weeks because of this and so it's not necessarily a life-threatening disease but um it is one nonetheless that causes unneeded suffering and um immobility in the and the world how has your in your experience you know this work in international development how has it changed since the pandemic well they made they wanted to make sure that we had a awareness of what it is to work in one of these in a, in a one of these countries where covid-19 is uncontrolled even though it was worse in america when i left to how it was in chad so it kind of made me laugh that there was all these travel warnings from the us state department on the COVID risk of Chad and even though it was everywhere in the world at that time, there's certain precautions we have to take out in the field, you know, wearing masks and make, making sure our colleagues are wearing masks and as well as uh, getting tested if you believe you've been exposed. Um, beyond that, it's been pretty status quo. And Chad, beyond the capital, not a lot of uh, civilians or just everyday people will wear masks. So you uh the risk is there i mean i i got it in in chad so any 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 idea how you think you you got it or is it just so rampant uh, that you know it was to be expected um i wouldn't say necessarily it's rampant but it's it just exists and people don't you know people get sick all the time of different stuff so like having a cough there is not uncommon at all and so i don't know i could have got it from anyone in my villages or from my driver or from another agent that I work with. It could be all types of stuff. But, um, yeah, I don't dwell too much on how I got it, but the, I, the, now that I'm vaccinated and previously had it, I find it, uh, a lot less frightening. And even for me, I, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about getting deathly ill or anything, but I certainly didn't want to have it because of potential long-term effects that could arouse from it could arise from uh, being infected with it. But we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, I can't do anything about it now. 
you're obviously experienced with the idea of inoculation and having to travel to developing parts of the world requires, you know, an enhanced level of due diligence, um, getting, you know, certain vaccines, um, and now COVID has come and the topic of vaccination is such a hot button issue. Yes. Uh, what do you say to someone who is not, um, keen or who's hesitant to getting a vaccine? For um, for the for for COVID nineteen specifically, I think uh, it's funny to me with these types of concerns. I think a lot of people do a lot of unhealthy behaviors all the time, and they, but then they they kind of draw the line at getting a vaccine. It, it's it's humorous, I, I guess you could say, when people, whether they're eating fast food or smoking cigarettes or drinking a lot or doing other drugs or not exercising, all these things increase your, yeah, I guess your likeliness of developing illnesses and a vaccine that has been created with some of the most intelligent people in the world with all of the, the biggest health apparatuses in the world, looking at it, millions of doses given out and the, and the tracking of side effects and symptoms that, that occur from, inoculation, all of these things that they think that have, have been, they've been lied to or they're keeping secrets or they're, they're out purposefully to harm people with these vaccines. It is, I don't understand this type of aversion to, to, this, to this vaccine versus other vaccines. And I think it's because people all of a sudden, I feel like a lot of people feel like they're immunologists and they say, oh, it wasn't studied for long enough before it, it was given to people or it wasn't, it wasn't uh, on the market long enough. I, you know, I want to get it in, in two years when they see what kind of side effects there are, which is, I guess, is a fair. And it, it is your health to a certain degree. But when it comes to a pandemic and it comes to the health of a community or an area, it's not really just your health anymore it's it's your community's health it's your family's health it's your neighbor's health if you have close proximity to them so i think at least in america we're a very individualistic nation and so a lot of people say it's my choice it's my body which it is but if you decide to do that you lose out on certain privileges of being in a society maybe you don't get to go to a knicks game because you don't have your vaccination card you're free to not be vaccinated but to say that you Cannot you can choose not to be vaccinated and be a danger to public safety? In my eyes, entitles you to be restricted in certain regards of in, in public settings. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you went there. You know, and I'm drawing um, some uh, similarities to what observations you'd made earlier of sanitation. You know, this idea of um, shitting in open air uh, being you know someone's individual right, but actually it having big implications for the rest of the surrounding community. Absolutely. Um, and, and here we have, you know, the vaccine where the conversation is rather myopically focused on my right to mm -hmm. not be vaccinated if I, if I should so choose. Um, but, you know, where is the discussion of responsibility in all of this? Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, hold on to that thought. Let me let my dog out. There's dogs barking outside and she's going crazy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you cut this part? Or I guess we can. Oh, yeah. It. We'll cut it all. Yeah. No cut worries, it up. Dude. All right. To cut it all up. All right.
Right on. Now I feel like now we're getting into the nitty gritty. Last time we spoke for like two hours and I didn't even realize that you had experienced COVID. Oh, I guess I didn't tell you last time. I didn't ask. Uh, or, uh, you know, I, I was unprepared. Uh, so you know, now we're getting the nitty gritty. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty wild. But thankfully, I was in the capital. So we have a we have a health service that a lot of uh, expats over there do called International SOS. And they do like medical evacuations in case you're like really messed up to another country near there. Sometimes Morocco, other times Nairobi in Kenya. And uh, they also have a clinic there, which is pretty unique because they, they offer that evacuation service in a lot of countries. But to have an actual clinic there is pretty pretty awesome because you know it's like french doctors and doctors from all over the world that uh so it's like essentially having like really nice western medicine in a place where that that, that sort of service is often pretty rare but in your case it, your your uh, infection or your experience with the covid wasn't that severe you didn't need uh, hospitalization no no and well, tell us uh, anything more about symptoms you experienced, loss of taste and smell, um, anything yeah. lingering still now? No, I feel fine now. I, um, the only thing I'm worried about is like some people talk about having heart issues. I don't have, I don't have any symptoms of any of that, but you know, that would really suck to develop a heart problem from such a novel disease. But if that is the, the way, the way she goes, that's the way she goes, as they say up where you are, huh? Yeah, and that's right. But uh, yeah, north, the symptoms, of the, north of the border. <laughs> that's yeah, right. Go, tell me. The symptoms, uh, they were pretty interesting. The, the loss of taste and smell were, from, a, from outside looking in, were, were, was one of the most unique sensations that I've had in my life. I'm, I'm not really a massive fan of super spicy stuff. I've kind of gotten a little bit more used to it from the food that I've had in in uh, different parts of Africa over the last couple of years, but I still would prefer a little bit more mild food as it is. And so I would have, I was just curious about it. So they have what they call Piedmont over there, which is just like real spicy ground up spices, herbs, peppers, essentially. And uh, we, we ordered like, we had to order food to get delivered to us um, over there, which is pretty funny. You like text this guy or you call him and he's like, hello. And you're like, Hey, uh, can I get this from that restaurant? He's like, yeah, sure. And then so he like goes over there and gets it and brings it to you. And he's just like a dude on a motorcycle. But thanks to him, we got a lot of food from different restaurants we know in Jemena. And who is he? Just a dude that offers his service. You paid him? Yeah. Yeah, you pay him. Like a like dollar, two dollars. That's the Uber Eats version of... Uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. And it's, it's like that dude and like one other dude, I think. And they, a lot of the expats use them. Forgive me, Stephen, because it's still unclear to me, but I, at what point, you know, were you in the... Was this, you know, in the Peace Corps or not? I, I'm, I'm confused still. Oh, about- sure. No, no worries. I, I think a lot of my friends and family are also confused. So the Peace Corps is... As a Canadian, I forget that you don't have a familiarity with this program. So this is a U.S. government program that uh, that was created by JFK uh, in 1961 or 62, 61, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is there's three different goals, which are to boil it down or to increase the uh, the knowledge and skills of the people that 
that we serve. So in my case, it would be increasing the knowledge and skills of people in my area of Togo for uh, health issues, for knowledge of how to get vaccines for their children, to, for knowledge of how to create latrines or hand washing stations or uh, certain resources that are available in the community for them to uh, live a healthier and more productive life. The second and third goal are both related to us as Americans understanding another culture and another people, another way of life, as well as the people of the host country, in my case, Togo, them understanding Americans, understanding the way that we live and the differences and similarities that exist between our cultures. And this program is two years that you spend in a often smaller village, remote or more remote village in these targeted host countries, which invite the Peace Corps to serve there. So Togo, the Togolese government, our State Department said, hey, we have this program called the Peace Corps. Um, would you like them to serve here? And they say yes, and then they, they come in and uh, serve in these countries, which Togo was the longest serving uninterrupted service uh, country in the world for our Peace Corps program. So other countries have had Peace Corps programs and they've gone or the government says we don't need you anymore or there's been security situations or there's been um, other reasons to why the Peace Corps has either withdrawn or been asked to leave or stated that their services, their, their program was no longer wanted or necessary in the respective countries. But Togo had been there since the beginning. I think it was it was one of the first countries that received a Peace Corps uh, program, as well as until COVID nineteen had had seen over you know what how many years is that fifty years forty fifty years of of uh, un- uninterrupted service. And so you have a three month training period before you go out to your village where you learn. In my case, French, uh, or if you already have a pretty high aptitude in in the the working language of a country, so for Togo, French is the working language as well as a local language. So if you already if you come in with pretty and you're pretty knowledgeable in French, then they'll put you on local language. So Eve is the biggest local language in Togo, and so a lot of people who uh, spoke French pretty well started learning those local languages. Uh, pretty soon into their training. For me, my French wasn't, wasn't, I got like inner, I think inter low, intermediate low when I first started. And then I, I left with intermediate high and now I'm probably advanced. Um, I don't know, mid something like that. The way that they, that's the way that they rank your language aptitudes. And, uh, so other people learned different local languages because they had higher French aptitudes And, um, but for me, it was a lot of learning French, which is how I, which helped me to where I am now. So after my two year, two and a half years, essentially in, in Togo, I came back to the United States and spent about four months, four or five months looking for a job. I had another colleague from Togo who was a year above me because new volunteers come every year to the respective Peace Corps countries. He... Uh, was working for the Cotter Center in this the same program I was in Chad, and uh, I had a few buddies who also applied that were in my grade or my stage as they call it, my class of Peace Corps, and uh, and I got the job in February, and then COVID happened. This is all 
February 2020. The, 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 the center again, it's called the what center? The Carter Center. Carter Center. Okay. So mm-hmm. that's your employer. Yes. And that's uh, out of the U.S. Uh, that does work in around the world. Yes, it's uh, Jimmy Carter's foundation. I see. And uh, they have different uh, types of programs that they do all, all around the world from peace and prosperity programs. Like, uh, I think they were pretty instrumental in the, f- the, the first talks that happened between Palestine and Israel and Egypt. I believe that they were a facilitator of that back in whenever that was after the Yom Kippur War and stuff. Okay. I'll, now I see um, Carter Center will plug that in the show notes so people can check that out if they're interested. But I, you, you mentioned it before and I didn't grasp it. So thanks for clarifying. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't in Togo that you had COVID. It was, uh, it was while you were in Chad. Uh, yeah. It was, it, was in, it was in Chad that I had it just, with, just a couple of months ago. With the Carter Center. Yes. Okay. So tell us uh, now we, we went off on a side uh, trail there, but uh, you know, having experienced this loss of taste and smell and strange sensations uh, you've got someone delivering food for you. What was quarantine like? Um, you know, when you had that notification? Oh man, that's pretty boring. Tell you the truth. We're in our, our um, organization's, I guess, bunkhouse, you'd call it. We, they call it like a base, but it's not necessarily a base of like operations. It's just where the people who work for the Carter Center in this in the capital live at. And so they had like two rooms open. So me, me and my other colleague that I, I lived with that I or I live with where I w- actually work is uh, we both got sick at the same time, as I mentioned at the house party. So me and him were there for a week and then he got the test that he was clear and then i got a test that i was not clear which was pretty terrible news because i was you know telling my family i was gonna be back here oh yeah there's no way i'm gonna test positive again and uh so that that was a pretty big blow to my uh to my uh sanity i guess you could say that i was just like when is this gonna end yeah because you're in you're in like essentially a you know just a pretty Spartan type of room and I had my computer and phone so it wasn't totally terrible so I had the internet and I could play a few games on my computer and stuff so there was a lot of that and watching movies and me and him were watching the new uh, season of F1 Drive to Survive that had come out season 3 I guess had come out at that point so we were watching that getting prepared for the new F1 season so that was a pretty big highlight other than that watching a few you know small movies and stuff but yeah i would uh i would not recommend getting COVID in uh jimena in where was it in jimena is the capital of chad i see okay and what do you say to people who think that COVID 19 is a hoax or maybe not real <laughs> at all yeah it's it's i don't know what you, you can actually say to that i've heard stories of like nurses telling people on ventilators they're dying from COVID and they just won't believe it. They think it's something else or they think it's, you know, it's, it's pretty insane. So there's, I'm sure that that type of person is an outlier, but, uh, I think with anything related to the internet, such as people's opinions on health issues have seemed to become intertwined with you, you will always have these, these voices that speak out that, that, want to 
want to speak as if they're an authority on matters that are very complicated and require a lot of expertise in. Everyone's an opinion, you know, an expert. Everyone's got an opinion now. It seems um, I can't seem to get a word in edgewise to talk about crime with all of the examples of you know true crime documentaries and Netflix shows. Oh um, yeah, that's the easiest podcast to make, isn't it? You just like read a Wikipedia page and be like, "Can you believe that? What kind of yeah. person?" I mean, yeah, I find a pretty low low effort true crime stuff is out there, but and there are some that are pretty interesting, but. I'm sure for you, especially that you have a more in-depth view of criminality than a vast majority of the population, those types of things could probably be a bit frustrating. I like to think of it, at least the Rex Crim show was born out of the idea of wanting to know about, uh, you know, actual experiences with crime as opposed to true crime. I think it's a misnomer and, um, Mm -hmm. but there is still an appetite though. And there's something to be said about information and how, people get their details it seems like on facebook and the other major uh social media platforms um mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a real problem especially when it comes to the pandemic and trying to organize ourselves so we can you know get get past it and and work together i mean that's sort of the lesson from, from yes. uh, mother nature it seems we you know and and the us has been tested uh you know, in, in your ethos of individualism, um, you know, you're having to work now collectively and together. What was your experience like traveling um, during this pandemic, going through airports and re-entering the U.S.? Yeah, that was pretty wild. Um, certainly, the the trip to Chad was was pretty great. I uh, the flight back from where would that be? That would be from. Addis Ababa, I flew from there. So I flew from Jamaica to Addis Ababa to Dublin to do a plane tra- or to do a f- refueling of our plane. Then from Dublin to Chicago, and then took another flight from Chicago to Dallas. All with layovers, you're getting off on. on Not off really. Plane? Maybe like I only only had a layover in Chicago, which was you know no big deal at all. Uh, Chi Town, yeah, Shaw City, baby. I have some buddies who live there that I was trying to visit, but uh, it didn't end up working out like that. But anyhow, I fell, I fell in love in Chi Town. Yeah, Lollapalooza. Not a not a new story for listeners of the Rex Crim Show, but uh, uh, that's where things uh, got got real. Yeah, I worked at a I worked at Lollapalooza back in 2014, the summer of 2014. It, was it would good, have been good the, fun. T- 2017 after I got back from the Netherlands and met the love of my life and mm-hmm. we all went to a party in Chai Town and I fell in love with uh, with her and uh, deep dish pizza. Lovely. Not a bad place to do it. She's given me the eyes here as we carry on but I'm sorry we're sidetracking again. <laughs> so so your experience in the so, airport and crossing borders. So that the reason I bring those flights up in that in that regard was the flight from Dublin to Chicago was like 20 people on a transatlantic flight. And so everyone was just laying down across their entire three seats that they were, they were like seated on. So I essentially had like a bed with a little bit, you know, there's some pieces of metal in between the seats that kind of stick into your back. But overall it was, it was pretty insane. Like it was, there was barely anybody on there. And, uh, I doubt that's going to be how it is on the return flight. But, um, Overall, the the airports were, you know, everyone's wearing masks and it's pretty standardized. Entering back into the United States, it always seems to become a little bit more dystopian every time I do it, where there's 
giant LCD TVs with American flag flying and the see something, say something. Can you spot the terrorist type of videos and but such as such as life in the in the modern hegemonic system that I live the in. Le- the level of concern and alarm is just rising, it seems. Yeah, I mean, there's a it's to be said how much of it is security theater and how much of it is a control and how much of it is necessary, which are my own opinions, but I, I love that, and I, I really want to unfold your view on this idea of security theater. I mean, I, I think that's so interesting. And is it the TSA who does their shtick um, uh, when you're traditionally, you know, getting on a since nine eleven, getting on a plane, you're having to negotiate with those TSA officers. And despite the fact that I've heard of numerous cases where you get on a plane with your pocket knife and it was missed, even though there's so many measures to supposedly catch the terrorist. Yeah. There's uh, been it, independent studies done with all that where they will put like fake guns and stuff in bags. And I think it, it got through like 70% of the time or something like that. It's just to give this semblance of security. And I, I find that just so fascinating and, and people, uh, people really do surrender uh, their sense of autonomy in the name of security. I mean, there's, there's really, let's linger on that for a minute. I, I just find that so fascinating. Who was that quote that was like, those who surrender freedom for security deserve neither? It was some, I can't remember who it was. It's, it was it's one always of your one, founding, of, those, those one of your founding forefathers. Oh, uh, was it? One of your founding, yeah. Yeah, those meme quotes that are always on the, about this discussion. But I find it like, I don't know, man. It's, I find that there's a massive wave of anti-intellectualism in the West, as well as a very obvious draw towards simple solutions to extremely complex issues that exist in a globalized world. And you have these strong men, these fascists that, and, and authoritarians that are coming to power all across the world, even the, the democratic world, such as what happened in America. And it's frightening to see because this is really both America and the world at large is really going to test whether human beings of vastly different intellect or not intellects. That's a dumb way to say it. Vastly different cultures, identities, uh, experiences and behaviors can truly live together because America as the most diverse country in the world. I mean, don't get me wrong. The rest of the Anglo world is certainly diverse in its own respect, but, I feel like America, as, as well as a number of people, we have almost half a billion people of such different backgrounds living together. It causes a lot of issues. And I feel like America, at least at a social level, we try to address these inequities at, at an individual level. And, at, and uh, we, as a society, we like to have these discussions on, you know, what is racism? What is injustice? What is, what can we do to create a more perfect world, a more perfect union as it is? You see it now with the internet. You 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 have such availability of information and videos and photos and stories and documentaries of all these different places in the world, which both increase the understanding of the individual of the other, but also if if used incorrectly or weaponized as as the internet can be through foreign agents or through um you know bad actors if you want to call them that can create fear of the other, can create distrust. And this want for security, as as I'm trying to circle back to that question of security theater, both with the TSA or with these quote unquote defensive wars that we've that we're finally ending in the Middle East, and it makes me I mean, sick. All, 
also the idea of the masks and, you know, um, yes. vaccines. I mean, it's sort of toted as I, I talked to my, my parents, uh, God love my mother. I mean, she is, um, she's a strong willed individual and, you know, at the moment, not in dire need of the vaccine because she's living in a rural space. And, and so, you know, she has opinions that are different than, than mine, but yes. one of the, uh, issues that she takes is this rhetoric that's being toted, you know, wear a mask, take the vaccine, not to protect you, but to protect others, mm-hmm. you know? And, and while that's true, I think there's been some really piss poor politics uh, used to try to evoke fear and to try to foster this this level of compliance. Um, I just I love what you referred to. Those who would give up essential liberty, yeah, there it is, to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Uh, you you know which mm. founding father of yours uh, said that? In fact. Mm, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like. Him. I I, uh, I just love that, and it's so it's so germane to this idea of going through the you know checkpoints at the border, and I fear those are going to become more and more commonplace uh, in this globalized world. Can you describe any more examples of what you experienced? You know, while while you've been crossing borders uh, through states and into the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Um. Beyond, excuse me, beyond all that, it was pretty normalized. It was, uh, I mean, even Addis Ababa was pretty, like people were, were wearing masks and you had to wear a mask inside the airport. But beyond that, it didn't seem any more or less uh, regimented than the other times I've been through Addis. So, uh, and I think now with vaccines, you have, there's a joke, I guess, among like liberals in America that's like, I mean, I'm vaccinated and the CDC says I'm not supposed to or I don't need to wear a mask in public spaces, but I don't want people to think I'm a Republican from, from because I'm not wearing a mask is the joke. And so it's all about politics. Yeah. And and for some reason, these this mask wearing became an issue of individual liberty, which I, I find it very bizarre. But there's another funny thing that I read. It was, it's not my original idea, but it was it was saying that where the CDC really fucked up is is they they explained that wearing a mask protects others and not yourself because of you know particles can get into the mask if you're not wearing like a surgical n95 perfectly fitted mask but your fucking spittle and coughing and whatever else expirant from your lungs can get out but your uh other people's shit can get in because it's not a perfectly closed system and so i think you know, it made me laugh because you, you put it in a in the very individual individualistic society like America that you you can protect others if you do this, and they say, "I don't, you know, who fucking cares?" You know, it's it's not my fault if they get sick. I'm not sick. You know, people that are even sick will deny that they are, and so it's insane. Like we can how we can build a society, a civilization, if you will, of people who all feel that it's their individual right to act in their entire uh, self interest. I feel like America had that at the beginning, but now it's become extreme. Like you have it being individualistic is what made America achieve so many great things and inventions and thinkers and, and art. But at the same time, what, at what cost is it now versus a, a collectivist society to the, the functional well being of its citizens in, in regards to their health choices? Yeah, it, it's never seemed so 
important to take a welfareist approach and making sure there's robust supports for those who need to take sick days, et cetera. But I mean, everything's such a, a politicized issue. We can't seem to win for trying. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you foresee things uh, going, you know, post pandemic, you alluded earlier to the idea of a vaccine passport. What does that look like for you and, and where is the world headed in, in your perspective? Well, I have, I just got my pax, my passport laminated uh, yesterday because I'm going to take it with me over there. Hopefully, I can avoid certain quarantines and stuff in Chad. But um, if not, it's uh, it's just a nice thing to have around. But mine, it says the dose, you know, what I got and the the the, the number of the vaccine bottle. I guess it's probably in a database at the WHO or something. The it it, it uh, individual bottle and dose, and so. Uh, I wonder if they're going to be able to, we already see states making these laws in America, at least outlawing the use of passports as a, as a measure for private businesses to block individuals from accessing their services, which is hilarious to me because I'm not sure if you're aware, but we had this very, I guess you could say infamous decision by the Supreme court that private entities such as businesses, their religious beliefs can allow them to refuse service of certain groups or certain uh, anything that that infringes on their religious beliefs they're allowed to reject is essentially it. it it the on the on the right they would call it a win for religious liberty on the left they would call it as a interference of of state and and uh, religion mixing. So there was a, uh, I think it was a cake shop somewhere in America. I don't know if it was in Boston or somewhere that would not make a wedding cake for a gay couple that got married. And I think this, they sued the, the cake company somehow. It got up to the point to the Supreme Court and they decided, as well as f- for Hobby Lobby, because Hobby Lobby says we will not support with our health care that you get from working at Hobby Lobby uh, birth control because we find it against our religious ideals as as the owners of this company, we found birth control immoral. And so both of these decisions essentially allowed um, individuals now to do whatever they want when it comes to businesses. It's this interesting mix of individual liberty. So you have these these, these businesses that can block uh, people from using their, their business or being in their, I guess, their property based on religious grounds. And include, extending to employees, which I think is also another thing. That it's not just like somebody going in to buy cake that's that's has their rights infringed, in my opinion, but also employees and the way that our healthcare is is structured in America, which is such a fucking mess that your employer has any decision on your availability to buy birth control. It's it's insanity. But the I guess the thesis of this whole thing is that you have on one side the right in America is very much supporting these religious liberties, as they would say, to block patronage by people that they deem violate their their religious views. And then you have, at the same point, them saying, no, you cannot block me from going to see a basketball game or to visit your store if you require a vaccine passport, because that's my, that's my private 
body, my private business, my health is my private business. They're just so entertaining to see the YouTube videos of people, you know, uh, you know, accosting a target store employee or whatever the case may be, because they insist, some Karen, you know, insists mm. that she has to be able to go into the retail environment, even though she's not amenable to wearing a mask. It's just so, uh, on the one hand, it's, 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 concerning but it's also deliciously consumable i mean i love mm -hmm. to see oh yeah you sure. know it's, it's so entertaining it's so entertaining but i mean it's such a problem no oh, yeah yeah it's 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 a mess i just i hope it's a generational thing and it will go away but i don't know i'm not so sure well let's tie it to another topic that i wanted to uh touch on with you, you we've talked about your globe trotting and um, some people might have picked up on the twang in your voice, but maybe others haven't. I don't think we've hit on <laughs> hit on where where you're speaking to us from. Do I have a twang? Uh, yeah, I think you do. You've got that uh, that certain drawl that it, that people like, and All so right. uh, needless to say, you're you're speaking to us from where? So I'm uh, in what we call DFW, Dallas Fort Worth area. I live closer to Fort Worth than Dallas, but um. I'm here for, for contract break in between my contracts with the Carter Center. I have a bit of time off until I uh, restart the, the next contract. You were born and raised there, and yes. I think there's a, a rich legacy uh, about the uh, history of the frontier. Uh, let's hit that and, and the idea of guns uh, and gun regulation. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, so at least in... Fort Worth, Dallas is a bit more liberal about these types of things, and they have a little bit more issues with uh, gun crimes than Fort Worth does. But the laws are the same, essentially. Um, pretty pretty open. I I own a number of guns myself uh, for for target shooting is what I use it for. I'm, I'm not really a big hunter. I don't really like hunting all that much. Um, I don't find it very enjoyable. But that's just my own self. Uh, I support hunters though a lot, especially deer hunters for um, keeping the ecosystem balanced because of different things that, that humans have done to the environment have created a imbalance of deer populations and certain bird populations. And you have all types of ecologists and, and people in the Texas game commission and other game commissions across the United States that study and ensure what limits can be made for animals and so on and so forth. And a lot of the conservation that is paid, not only for uh, uh, conservation of animals, but also natural spaces, including national parks, is paid by hunter fees, hunter licenses. And so a lot of people think that hunters are kind of these soulless murderers, at least more my more liberal-minded friends. But I find them to be some of the more staunch conservatives conservators of the natural world that uh, that are probably existent in America at those at this moment. Beyond hunting, I like to shoot. Uh, you know, I like to shoot targets. I have a handgun and a shotgun, a pump action shotgun. That's fun for shooting skeet, what we call skeet traps, which are clay discs that you know they fling out and you shoot. You probably seen it on movies and stuff. Um, that we shoot at the ranch, and I have a, a rifle that's good for target shooting. And I have two, you know, very scary looking, um, AK 47s. I, I do have an AK. I just got recently and, uh, uh, the dreaded AR 15 that you probably hear in the news all the time. 
Well, I, I'm wondering about news uh, that just broke on, you know, a matter like 72 hours ago out of, I think, Houston. Uh, there was yet another shooting. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you uh, up to speed on, on that news? Not for that one. I mean, it's a depressing reality in America that that happens uh, quite often. So how do you how do you reconcile these atrocities that seem to keep happening, uh, juxtaposed to the culture of you know being on the, I mean, what does it mean to to have help help me understand the the term frontier? What does that mean to you? Well, at least Fort Worth has a very lively history of truly being a frontier town. They they, they one of the the old slogans of the city of Fort Worth is where the West begins. Uh, it's, it's a big prairie land. If you, if you ever visit here, it's surrounded by just kind of rolling golden prairies. And as, at one point it was called the Paris of the Plains, Fort Worth was. Anyhow, they, um, I think along with this time of frontiersman spirit of both individualism and taking your personal security into your own hands, as well as the distrust of the authorities and power structures that exist to secure us even though nowadays i think it's pretty evident that the police don't have the 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 protection of individual citizens in their in their highest regard at least in my opinion i feel like they're more of a uh enforcement of public property or private property sorry than they are of keeping us safe i don't really i don't really um i feel like there's a lot of choices or a lot of uh, not choices a lot of reforms that need to be made to the police uh, across this country. Now yeah. you're really getting into my field. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your ideas about it because I have, uh, I have some, I have some friends who are just now entering into the police force, and so it's interesting to see their perspective of what it is on the inside. And for now, you, you, you just you, you carry on with the, explaining the frontier. I'm sorry for interrupting. So yeah, I'm, I, I get off on a bit of tangents. Anyhow, so you have this this frontiersman spirit, this individualistic spirit in 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 America, but specifically in the South and the Southwest, I would say, this type of uh, belief that your security is of your family and yourself is chiefly your concern, which I guess it is in a certain way. So I can, I can get down with that line of thinking. But when it comes to guns, I think a lot of what happens in America when it comes to mass shooting events and all the tragedies that have occurred in the past are stemming from our healthcare system. And I think they stem from our lack of uh, care availability for mental health issues, as well as a stigmatization of seeking out uh, health care, and particularly mental health care. On top of that, I think our background checks for guns are pretty idiotic. It's I can walk in right now. I can I can drive to Fort Worth and come out with another AR-15 if I wanted to in about forty minutes. I can be back at this house with an AR-15, and so those types of of I mean, I'm not, I don't have a felony. I'm, I'm not, um, it's interesting that, that, that form, it's like, are you a, uh, are you currently an dependent slash addicted to any illicit substance? I think it's one of the questions, you know, yes or no. It's, it's one of those types of, of, of forms. Yeah. That, that they're just trying to cover their own ass. Versus like, well, he said he wasn't uh, addicted to meth. So it's, you know, it's, there's so such little accountability when it comes to individuals acquiring a firearm. And I don't think it's infringing upon the rights to own a firearm to have a more robust check of who can get them 
um, and who can't. But on the other side of the coin, the cat's already out of the bag when it comes to that type of stuff. There's there's different loopholes that people can get a gun with, um, or they can get it from a friend. Private sales are not uh, are not monitored at all. So I can buy a gun from my buddy for fifty bucks if I wanted to, and it's mine. No transfer of license, no nothing. And so these types of things just um, create a a reality that guns are prevalent everywhere. And so controlling the guns is probably not going to work, I don't think. And and on top of that, you have this massive system of of mental. I don't know what you call that. Not not disability, mental health crisis, I guess you could say, that's existent in America, where so many people have mental health issues, in my opinion, stemming from the conditions of the labor force in our country. We have very little protections. We have very little luxuries that are afforded to the rest of the developed world when it comes to maternity leave, when it comes to vacation days, when it comes to sick leave, when it comes to access to health care that's divorced from your, your current employer, when it comes to stigmatization, as I mentioned, of mental health, when it comes to the, the lack of time. You can't take time off of work to go to the doctor because people are, are earning such depressed wages in, in comparison to the living wage of the country. And, and all of these issues cause people to have mental episodes and they cause them to act irrationally. And having a firearm is the easiest way to create violence when you act irrationally. You never cease to amaze me Stephen, I uh, think to when we first met and I had preconceived ideas of Americans, um, you know, and uh, granted, I guess you're an exception to the rule being, you know, a globetrotter and someone who holds a passport. I think there's a staggering amount of Americans who haven't even left the U.S. ever. Yes. Uh, but I, I like that you have, I think, rightly pointed to all these socioeconomic factors, you know, that are underpinning the issue of gun violence you're right you know without um a more robust set of social welfare principles Mm -hmm. you know you've you've got a a right you've got a a fertile ground for disaster it seems Uh, yeah absolutely and i think that's what annoys me when there's democrats the left in our in our country goes up and says we need to ban this part of a gun or a gun that looks like this or this type of ammo or this amount of rounds that can be chambered in a, in a, in a firearm. These are the, the solutions to our gun violence. And I, I think it's so disingenuous and it's so, it's such a scapegoat because addressing these huge and, and almost unimaginable social inequities that exist in our nation is a hard fucking business. And it's a hard thing to legislate and it's a hard thing to get people on board with because this individual liberty that we value so high for some reason it's gotten into the mind of of i think a large a large percent of the populace that it'll be your individual liberty will be infringed if if these types of um vast societal change occur which i i think you would be more free than less free in my opinion if you have this single-payer health care Versus the way that the fucked up way that we do it now, it'd probably cost less for the individual. It'd probably allow you to 
select any type of doctor you wanted, not just the ones that are in your pre-approved in-network uh, list from your med- from your medical provider. It's it's insanity to me, and I find it difficult to. I find it more and more difficult to empathize with the point of view that exists on, I guess, the opposite side of mine in America, because I find a lot of it stems from a lack of empathy. Uh, you have a, uh, I'd almost find it a, almost half a nation bereft of empathy for those outside of their social circle. I'm not saying you got to go and and hug a homeless dude on the street like like some people extrapolate this type of uh, um, care for the other. Like, well, why don't you do it? Why don't, why don't you go to the homeless shelter and feed them? Like, that's what's annoying. I've heard that, that saying so many times. It's like, oh, you have a problem with homelessness? Why don't you go do something about it? And I was like, no, how about we get the fucking government that we pay infinitely more than the, the, the goods that we get back? Maybe not infinitely. That's a dumb way to put it. But what, what you're getting, what I'm getting at is people inherently, maybe it's because I'm in the South, but people inherently view the government as a necessary evil. Something that that has to exist so the roads remain paved and the schools remain open. And if there was a way to do it without the government, they would they would do it in a heartbeat. When I, on the other hand, I find the government, its only function and job is to serve us, and we allow them the power to rule over us in return for their them organizing and them providing social services that keep us both safe and healthy. This is the social contract. Yes. theory that you're uh, referring to. Yes. And it it's I think in America what it really boils down to is the the role of government. It's it's not what programs they like, it's not abortion, it's not gun rights, it's not same-sex marriage, it's not weed legalization. It's what is the role of government and that in itself is such a massive question and and I think it'd be disingenuous for any individual to say, "Oh, here's my point of view" immediately because I think it's a very nuanced conversation. And it has been since democracy was invented. I feel very fortunate, though, in, in a lot of weird ways to live in such a unique time in, in human history. I feel like this is truly one of the most amazing times to live in when it comes to the technology, to internet, to uh, virtual worlds that we can explore through through movies and video games, through to all the different types of media that's available, to the massive advancements in science and medicine from MRA mRNA vaccine all the way up to new cancer treatments to to not dying because you have a blood infection like these types of things are so incredible to me but as a consequence of living in such incredible times you have incredible challenges and I think it's very important to not lose sight of the progress that we have made as a, as a civiliza- human civilization not just as American civilization and I mm-hmm. hope that, as Abraham Lincoln would say, our our better angels were will will prevail and and bring us out of this kind of darkness that we're in right now. But even then, it's already kind of looking like the lights at the other end of the tunnel. In my view, from COVID vaccinations in the world kind of getting back to normal, and we kind of got lucky in this pandemic in a weird way because this pandemic, the disease was not v- virulent; it wasn't deadly in the way that it could be. It wasn't 25% of the people that become infected die, 30%. Ebola is 50% with, with top-level mass general 
Mayo Clinic care, like the best hospitals in the world. If you get Ebola, you have a 50% chance of dying if you're in the best medical care in the world. So should that day come, which it probably will, hopefully our experience with this type of uh, pandemic disease will somehow influence our reaction next time. I, I really want to um, reference here a, a spectacular podcast that I listen to. It's a mega four-hour podcast, but I highly recommend it uh, uh, on uh, the Making Sense by Sam Harris podcast. It's It was called Engineering the Apocalypse okay. and uh, featuring Rob Reed and, and uh, Sam Harris. And um, you know, it, t- it talks much about what you're referring to. And I think Rob Reed is involved with, um, the center for communicable diseases, uh, or at least that's a reference to the show, but they, they make reference to the idea of gun violence and, you know, to your point of what is the role of government, um, and it's true, you know, as, as they say in this podcast, you know, it seems much like, COVID-19 is a dress rehearsal for the, for the big one that, you know, is, could very well be around the corner. And until there's some changes in our ways, um, you know, we, we should be preparing for something that's far more infectious and or deadly. Yes. And, um, even though you've seen a lot of people who, uh, who didn't, um, take the precautions for this pandemic, I think if, if there was truly, because to be honest, a lot of people got sick with it and not a lot of people died. And I understand that, that mindset that like, it's not that dangerous, even though I think it's a, it's an idiotic mindset. I understand it. But if there was truly a disease that killed 30% of the people infected, I think you would see a lot of a different response from individuals, even countries like mine. And it, 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 uh, it's one of those situations, of course, you can never, you can never really see until it happens. It's one of those things that hopefully it doesn't happen for another 50 years, another 100 years. But with the, with the increase of globalization of, of goods, peoples, and ideas, events of uh, global scale, not just diseases, but um, take your pick from terrorism to war to famine to climate change will only increase. And so it's, it's interesting to to see kind of, or to, to try to view a macro perspective of what it is in the globalized world to, to experience a, a crisis. And hopefully we'll be more prepared next time. Yeah. I mean, also an historical one. I mean, it's amazing to look back at the lessons that we failed to learn from the, um, you know, the Spanish flu, which was not from Spain, uh, by the way, are you familiar with that tidbit? Yeah, that it's it's named differently in like a lot of different countries, isn't it? So I found this really fascinating. You know, it, it seems like it. I mean, this is a result of globalization coming from uh, what war was it? I guess the First World War. Yeah, was, in, yeah. Or, in around eighteen or uh, what was it? Nineteen. Nineteen eighteen. Uh, I think something like that. Not, not exactly, and Spain, in fact, wasn't very involved with the war, so they were reporting with quite a bit of neutrality. They just reported the facts, yeah. but because they, they were the first to report on it, uh, they got dubbed with the, you know, they were erroneously dubbed with the title, the Spanish uh, flu, even though the first yeah, signs, I think, global. were, yeah, they were shown actually in Kansas, I think, as something out of the U.S. or other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going back even further, I'm reading, um, uh, I'm reading a book right now, A Journal of the Plague Year. 
by Daniel Defoe, and he's writing about observations of his time in London, England in 1665. And, you know, the same thing. Is he the one that that worked with cholera and and saw that it was in wells? I'm not 100% sure. I've only just started reading it. But he, from what I can see, is making observations that, you know, people were... um, well, I, there's just a lot of parallels that I see in in you know people were unsure how to how to proceed, uh, mm. disagreement and discord among folks. I mean, you know, haven't we have we learned nothing from previous examples? It seems like we're often too sidetracked with you know our trinkets and phones and yeah. um, you know, it makes me wonder you know if if we will learn anything, and I, I, think, I think we have a responsibility to. I think we we do learn something. I think that oh, this pandemic would have been a lot worse if the if the CDC didn't have experience with it elsewhere and other times in history. Like, I think it's easy to say like, oh, we, you know, we the response was was fucked up or it was it was bungled, but it could have been worse. I guess is is my is my uh, my view on that type of thing. Sure. Can I uh, go to the bathroom real quick? Yeah, sure. And we're back. Where were we? Where were we? We were talking about, you know, learning from the past and uh, moving forward. So, um, but I'm also mindful of of your time and uh, we got a, you got a few more minutes to carry on. Yeah, yeah. So what do you... the docket. Right on. Well, I do. <laughs> I've got one podcast after another. I've got a friend that I'm going to be speaking with who's currently in Israel. Oh, and, shit. Uh, so that's that's a future episode coming uh, shortly after yours airs. And she's, um, well, we're going to talk a little bit Do about her. Do I know her? her. Is she from your program? I don't think so. No, she's actually, I grew up with her. Uh, uh, okay. So she's Canadian and uh, fell in love with a with a uh, an Israel. Can I say Israelite? Uh, yeah, I think I that's think, the denim. Yeah. That's, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I'll be practicing my Hebrew and, uh, (laughs) catching up with her, but I think she's got, uh, I'll be interested in her perspective on the vaccine because Israel has been one of the, you know, product, most productive States, it seems in getting their citizens vaccinated and getting back to some sense of normalcy. Although, um, uh, although I think I, I suspect her opinion will be, you know, cynical of the, infringement on human rights. Um, but I mean, that aside, there's a lot of conflict that's going on right now. And just this idea of an iron dome, uh, uh, and Hamas and um, these details that I hear about in the news, I'll, I'll be fascinated to yes. learn more about. So stay tuned for that episode upcoming. Will do. So, um, but, uh, back to, back to you, my friend, Stephen. I, I mean, it's hard to uh, it's hard to cram all of your experience into such a small format of uh, you know an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you got uh, in store? What's what are you looking forward to in the future? You're taking off back to Chad in the next couple of weeks, I think. Yes, back to Chad. Um, I plan to work there for a good while, maybe like another year and a half, um, maybe more. I'm un- I'm unsure. If they'll if they'll keep uh, keep me, I'd like to see what what happens. I like uh, I kind of like my my trajectory in, in the program so far, and I like the all the people I work with a lot. And it's it's really fat every day is kind of unique and challenging in its own way. And I find it very enjoyable to be 
on the ground and in Chad and to see the 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 realities of both guinea worm as well as just everyday life. And so I'm not sure but what after that, you know, eventually I would like to work for the UN would be ideal, but that's uh that's a tough cookie to get into I, as, as far as I understand. So maybe I'll just kind of work on continuing my experiences. I'd like to see other places in in Africa as well, like work in Ethiopia or Kenya or Tanzania something like that. I think it would be interesting, even though they don't really have, uh, well, some of them have guinea worm, uh, Ethiopia chiefly, but not to the level of Chad. Beyond that, I'd like to see more of Africa and other types of work and stuff. So who knows? The future's wide open. We started the conversation about your um, being an audiophile, yes. uh, but we, ha- we haven't uh, shed light on the progress you're making in having some of your records documented in the library of Congress. Let's touch oh, sure. on that. Um, so I, I guess as a background for all of this, I became interested in this division of the library of Congress called the folklore and folk life division. That was, it went by a different name when it was first created, but it was started by this man named Alan Lomax, who he and his father, were both what we'd call ethnographers that that would go around and collect and study and preserve different aspects of culture that they felt was in danger of being eliminated by the march of of progress that existed in both America and elsewhere in the world. And so he recorded songs and uh, poems personal histories, all types of, of works that documented uh, American life in the earliest 20th century, early to mid 20th century. And I found this work so fascinating. And uh, I wanted to try to do my best to add to it during my time in Togo. So I first, the, w- the way that some of the listeners may be familiar with these recordings is in the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? the beginning um, song that you hear at the beginning of the film and both the very, the the first track on the uh, very well selling soundtrack, as I understand, it's like multi-platinum soundtrack is a song called Poe Lazarus by John Carpenter and the prisoners is who it's titled as. And uh, this was a prisoner work gang. I think it was in Texas somewhere, South Texas, Central Texas. And he recorded them singing different work songs that they used to keep time when they're doing physical manual labor tasks. So in this one, they're chopping logs, I believe, is what they're doing. And so in time with the log chops, you can hear them singing a song about a man named Lazarus. I don't think it's the biblical Lazarus. It's kind of a little bit different, the story. But uh, anyhow, I found the song so so fascinating and such a cool part of uh, American culture that I don't really hear this much, as well as as uh, black voices and blacks and black uh, music that we don't really get exposed to in mainstream American culture. So both like him lead, and work lead songs, belly. yeah, Lead Belly is also another one. Alan Lomax himself uh, knew Lead Belly uh, pretty decently, it seemed, and they had a pretty interesting working relationship. There's a few YouTube videos you can see of them of him recording Lead Belly, and Alan Lomax is there talking to him, and and you know. Alan Lomax himself was a musician and uh, he played banjo and guitar and some other stuff. 
And so he would play with these like pretty legendary musicians that we have now, as well as him documenting as they saw in that time, the the underclass of society, the the periphery of of society. So from Lead Belly to these prisoners to um uh I forgot what her name is. She's like a badass she's like one of the origin of rock and roll. I can't remember her name. She's like uh what is her name? It's like not priest, but it's it's like pastor something i can't believe i can't remember her name now but you look look her up like as uh she's like one of the genesis of rock and roll guitar and uh he'd recorded a couple of songs of hers and he just had this really cool history and he was also really into civil rights and he went to his dad went to university of texas and he lived right next to my ranch and which is pretty crazy i didn't realize until i was reading his book uh or he has two different books but his first book and uh I didn't realize that they had, we had such a geographical connection to the family, which was pretty cool. Cause they're, they're the city that they grew up in. We like pass all the time going to our ranch. It's right next to it. And, uh, anyhow, I found this type of work to, to be not only, uh, fascinating and the songs themselves have such quality and history of themselves. Cause a lot of these songs, he recorded some of that of like people that were, you know, 80 years old and 19, his dad did at least in like 19, 20 and thirties. So that were former slaves. And so to hear them um, speak of, of their time as, as in slavery, as well as the songs that, that were passed down to them through their family members who were also enslaved, it's pretty harrowing, but it's, I find it a very pivotal and important piece of American history that was preserved by Alan and his, and his, and his father, John. And I, in, I'm sure you've always, you hear this all the time in National Geographic where it's like these many languages are disappearing a day, thousand, this thousand or whatever it is. And so I kind of wanted to see if I could do my part to record these types of songs in Togo. And I, I bought like a, a little voice recorder, a task cam, I believe is what it was by a channel recorder or not by channel. It has those two metal pieces on the top, you know, that look like little microphones that go in each way. Stereo recording, I guess is what it is. And my recordings, I sent a, a few of them off to the ones that I thought was the best, but they, uh, they might be a little bit too low quality to submit, sadly, to the, the, the center because I kind of did it off of, you know, on a whim and I'd already ordered the equipment by the time I uh, spoke to the, 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 the folklore division. And uh, so what I plan to do about this is when new Peace Corps volunteers go into the countries to, to create, you can create like grants essentially. That's like, I'll, I'll fund this. If somebody does this, essentially there's a, there's like a web page for it because some people will say, I want to do a water project in this part of the country. I want to fund this because I used to serve in that part of the country. And you know, there's a lot of reasons. Some people didn't have funding while they were there. Other people just want to give back to the community that they lived in, of course. Anyhow, um, I'd like to make it at least in Togo because in, in these types of settings that you live in, you, you're very intimately intertwined with, with your community and they know you very well and, and, and interact with you every day. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's your community. And so I'd like to use that, that type of relationships that Peace Corps volunteers build with their communities to record a lot of these uh, songs and stories 
in these local languages. So I did, and the ones that recordings that I gathered were in, uh, in, in my area were an Akebu was a language that was spoken where I was. And so a lot of them are, are funeral songs or, uh, church songs for Christian churches and Catholic churches that are in local language, as well as, um, uh, kind of like, I guess you'd call them celebration songs that they have for different purposes. And uh, I I just think it's so important to preserve these these pieces of of human culture before they they become more and more rare and eventually extinct from globalization. When people start learning French in in, in Togo more than they start learning their their local language, and eventually those local languages will go away. I like that a lot. You know, this is the, uh, the idea of capturing culture and uh, to use your own phrase, um, you know, um, ideas or sounds on the periphery of society. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of ways, I, I kind of see that as the work of the of what the Rex Crim show um, is is trying to do is, you know, capturing divergent perspectives and those outliers, uh, you know, that you wouldn't normally listen to sure in your case uh you're you're capturing uh or you did and you've hopefully well you've captured it to the best of your ability yeah but it's currently what is the status it's currently pending we're talking about the library of congress the american folk life center is that right that's correct yeah one of them is pending i believe it's been forever i need to send them another email they're like we'll let you know what happens and they never did but i think that's on me for not uh, catching up with them but yeah it's because there's not to get too technical but there's like certain bit rates and stuff that you need as well as like uh, the fidelity of of how it was recorded it needs to be stereo but also like not I think it's called like stereoscopic where it's like in the same area it needs to be like a left and a right kind of more spaced out as far as I understand there's certain guidelines to follow that they're not necessarily super strict but I just didn't heed them before I bought my recorder and recorded some of them so uh yeah, if I could do it all over again, I would be a bit more observant of the guidelines because they they're enshrined forever. Like all you know, all of these things in the Library of Congress are I don't I don't know if you've ever been to DC, but they're like stored underground and essentially can survive nuclear bombs. Like they're they're the Library of Congress was created during the Cold War. Or maybe not. I guess not. I'd have to look at the story again of it. But I know that during the Cold War they focused a lot on enshrining human and Western culture and knowledge so in case of a nuclear war there would be some semblance of surviving works i believe is one of the the main entry uh, main interests of the library of congress but also you know in a more imperialistic way it, it documents and, and enshrines our culture uh, to be preserved and enjoyed and influential as it is until the end of time is really the 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 more imperialistic goal of it but i think that's totally fine in my to world. document, yeah, to document the culture, and so in your next uh, adventure, you were just showing me before we recorded uh, started recording in the pre-show chat. Um, you you have uh, another piece of technology, um, which ties into your creative skill set that has to do with photography. Yes, um, I uh, just got a new camera, a new Nikon camera. I'm a Nikon boy. I don't know what do you shoot on. 
also. Also Nikon? I, I think I, I took your advice, actually. The first DSLR I got was uh, while we were in grad school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think I took a page out of your book and went with uh, Nikon and... And that's what I've used since. But you've you've upgraded your set, and what do you intend on shooting? And and can folks find uh, anything that you that you take? What do you intend to do with your photos? Um, yeah, I uh, I like to take uh, photos of individuals I know and different cultural events, as well as um, wildlife, and those are my two like kind of main focuses, and. Uh, I throughout the, my, my time at the Peace Corps, I captured a lot of different images of of culture in my area of Togo, and I have them on my website at SCV Photography. But photography is spelled in the French way, so your Canadian listeners probably won't have too much trouble spelling that. But uh, instead of uh, as it is in American, it's G R A P H I E, graphy, photography. Is that your page? Yes, that's my website. Just, just say it out loud. SCV Photography. I see. SCV Photography.com. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. And so it's, I, uh, I've been a bit neglectful of it. So there's some, some links on there that, that have just placeholders. But uh, I have a couple different ones. I have a, a photo series of when I was in uh, Istanbul visiting Ralph, if you remember my buddy Ralph. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I have another one on when I went to Chernobyl, uh, my time in Togo, a wildlife preserve and in, in uh, near my ranch. Uh, I need to get my photos from when I was in Uganda and went on to the uh, safari at Murchison Falls uh, National Park, which I haven't put up there yet. And I plan to put some more from Chad, but some of my work is uh, that I do with the Carter Center is is sensitive in nature as well as um, their it's it's kind of like I wouldn't say trade secrets, but it's it's and I need a bunch of permissions to put the photos that I take during work uh, up there. So I gotta cross that red tape when I come to it. So for now, folks can find s uh, scvphotography.com. Yeah, it's just for my most recent stuff, but my my old stuff is on there. And uh, with this new camera, I hope to, to do a lot more um, portraiture with uh, people I work with, as well as uh, the surround in the the environs of where I work. And so we'll see how that all pans out, but I have it more. It's just like a hobby. I find it fun to document my, I have a, I've had the, both the opportunity and the, the chance luck, whatever you want to call it to, to live a a pretty, I would say unique life. Um, in the, in regards to my work and schooling that I've, I've been able to visit a lot of places. And so, I probably started a little bit later than I should have when it comes to for t- uh, taking photos of all those things, but you know, better late than never. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. It's that it's that saying: the best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago, but the second best time is today. Yeah, that's I like that words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so, I, hopefully, uh, with this camera, I, I can explore a little bit more, and I getting used to a full frame uh, body, as well as uh, the price that comes with it. Good God. Those things can get pricey quick. Well, it's uh, going to a good cause, I think. Uh, you know, I, definitely some overlap uh, while you enjoy a true scientific degree and I'm uh, in the airy fairy arts. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think there's some overlap in the idea of ethnography and this sort of in-depth and emphatic appreciation for life on the fringe. Sure. So I, I'm uh, entirely grateful for the time you've spent thus far, and I'm hoping we're going to have you on maybe uh, to speak from the plains of Africa in the near future or wherever you should end up. But um, in the meantime, I, I want to give you the last word. Is there anything else you think uh, that we need to hit on or anything you want to plug? You take the last word. Um, not that I can really think of. I think we hit on a pretty good range of topics. Hopefully it wasn't too rambling, but I know I can kind of get off topic when I get on something. I'll keep you on track in the editing process. There we and, go. That's uh, what we'll it's take for. care of you. I wonder if we can just... Um, set the expectation that maybe you can help facilitate a connection with our old friend Guy. Yeah, I, uh, I'll try. I, I saw that I, I still have his, uh, Instagram, but he hasn't posted anything in about two years. So I don't know if I'm even messaging him on there would, would get him. I think the or, email or his partner, Chloe, I couldn't find her Instagram. I, I searched her name and I couldn't, f- I couldn't find anything. If we, We'll have to see if we can track them down. I don't know if I if I would still have an old email. And, of course, I'm off Facebook and all the social media, I think but we he, have to... I think he... I don't know if he sent it to me. Let me see here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see his email right here. Right on. Well, why don't you flip that over to me and we'll... Uh, we'll let's let's make... Uh, I'll re, reconnect. There we go. So... Um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, what more is there to say? We've covered uh, years... Um, time together in just a short, short while, and I'm uh, yeah delighted to to see you and hear you again. And folks are only able to hear you now, but I'm rambling. Mm-hmm. So thanks, thanks for taking the time, Stephen. Um, people can check out your work, Comma Joe, on Bandcamp and uh, photography website, which is going to be in the show notes as well. Um, God love you and good luck uh, heading back over to Africa and uh, stay tuned for more coming in on the Rex Crim show and we'll be having you back soon. Thanks bud. I'll see you then.